Well, this morning, uh, we've been on a little bit of a sabbatical from our series in James. And uh, in the following weeks with Palm Sunday and Easter, I don't know that we're going to be making much steam ahead. Uh, But this morning, I'd like to ask you to consider one more little section here in James chapter 1 under uh, our series title, Living Up to Your Faith. And we're going to be in uh, verses 17 and 18 of James chapter 1. This little message here, living up your faith, really encapsulizes so much of what James says in this letter. He's basically reaching out to these believers scattered abroad in the ancient world, finding themselves in places they never thought they would be. And he's saying, look, you, you say you believe in Jesus Christ. You say you're following the word. Now you need to live like that. And here's how you live up to that claim. And he applies this message in a lot of very helpful ways. And I was reminded as Brother Drew opened up 1 Corinthians 16 this morning that even though James is sometimes polemical, he's telling them, look, you're believing this and that's not right. You need to believe this instead. You're walking this way. You need to turn around and walk that way. That you sense his burden and his pastoral love for the people that he's writing to. I think it was a wonderful reminder this morning that that God often gets onto us in the word. He ought to do that. He's trying to put us on the path of life, but he always does it out of love. We saw that in Revelation, it seems like years ago now, right? When we were in Revelation uh, chapters two and three, looking at the seven churches, these, these churches suffered in ways you and I have never understood yet. Ways you and I have never experienced. And yet Jesus Christ was sometimes, look, you need to stop doing this and I'm gonna come and take your candlestick away and, and you need to do some spiritual triage. You're about to die. You need to, to wake up here. And you're like, you know, give them a break. I mean, they're, they're really going through a lot. And yet Jesus Christ lovingly guides them and directs them and tries to put them on the path that he knows is gonna be the only path of blessing that there is. And, and James does that often as well. And I think we'll see that here as we look at verses 17 and 18 and see how James applies this message to the subject of giving, living up to your faith in the area of giving. Not not our giving to God, but His giving to us. It's a little two-verse section that teaches us to acknowledge God's gifts gratefully. Because James writes, if you'll look at verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, Frankly, if we really understand what James is saying here, this is a little bit awkward, or it can be. Because I don't know that we can always look back on our lives, maybe in the past year, maybe even in the past week, and say that we always thought that everything God provided, every financial provision, every material need, every opportunity was good and perfect. I mean, maybe not all the time. Sometimes, in fact, we questioned why God provided one gift rather than another, why he opened up one opportunity but slammed the door on something else that we really wanted. 
In fact, we may have received that gift from God like we do when we unwrap a Christmas present or a birthday present only to discover something really disappointing. You know what I mean? Have you ever been there before? Uh, the, the person who gave you the gift is expecting you to like it, but it's something hideous <laughs> or something that you were not expecting or you were expecting something a lot more significant and you're trying to overcome and hide your disappointment <laughs> or shock while trying to convey gratitude at the same time. And let me just say, some of us pull this off better than others. Have you ever gone through the motions of thanking God for his blessings because maybe you're in a prayer group, but in your heart, you're really questioning God's wisdom and why he gave what he did? Or maybe you remember when you were a child and your brother or sister's Christmas presents seemed nicer than what you received. And you were trying to be thankful for your gifts, but at the same time, you were wrestling with envy over what somebody else received. We can do this too when we look at what God gives us in comparison to what, what he gives somebody else. Why doesn't give, God give me a car like that? Why doesn't he give me a job like that? Or a vacation like that? Or a home like that? Or an experience like that? I mean, do we wrestle with the assertion that God always gives, as James explains here, good and perfect gifts? So why does James bring this up? Well, in general, of course, we remember that he's writing to this first wave of believers in the church who are all Jewish, who are spread abroad mainly because of persecution. That means they had to leave their homes in a hurry. They had to find refuge in less than ideal places with a new environment. And many of them were probably living near poverty, trying to provide for their families. So it was definitely a situation they had not counted on. And they had to trust the Lord perhaps more than ever before. And I'm sure that God's gifts did not look the same to them as they did back when they were living perhaps in Jerusalem. So it was a perfect opportunity for them to question God's wisdom, why he had even allowed this whole situation to begin with. But if you think about it, James has been dealing with the giving of God in the life of the believer since he began writing the letter. In verses 2 through 4, James begins, remember, by telling them, embrace your trials joyfully. Some trials are triggered by sin, either our sin or the sin in somebody else's life. But other trials, God actually places in our lives by his own design. And those trials that God allows and those he gives to us are meant to grow us. Remember, God never wastes any of our trials. So by implication, we should consider the kind of trials that God places in our lives as his good gifts. Then verses 5 and 8, James says, if we need wisdom, especially in the context, wisdom in knowing how to handle trials, we should ask God for wisdom sincerely. That is, we should ask openly, honestly, truly. And when we ask in that way, we discover that God gives in that way. He gives openly and honestly and sincerely. James says in verse 5 that God gives generously to all without approach. So we've already seen in this little section what kind of giver God is. He's a generous God who does not tire at our requests. 
And that's important to understand when we're heading into verses 9 through 12, which teach us celebrate your life wisely. If you're visiting with us this morning, by the way, there's a sermon for every one of these titles here, okay? I'm not cheating uh, by just giving you a title, okay? So you can, you can find these online and ask somebody, they're going to tell you how to find those. Um, but here, uh, there's a contrast between the lowly brother without a lot of possessions or income and the rich brother who is at the opposite end of the wealth-poverty continuum. And in order to celebrate the circumstances God has placed you in with true wisdom, you must start with the understanding that God is the giver of both poverty and riches. But what is awaiting all brothers and sisters in Christ someday very soon, and sooner than we probably think, is what God will give equally to each of them in verse 12, the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And finally, in verses 13 through 16, it teach, James teaches us to face temptation knowingly. These verses caution us never to make the mistake of thinking that God is the author of our sin, that God uh, has somehow led us into sin. God is unaffected by evil, and he certainly does not give the temptation to sin. Our temptation to sin comes from our own desires, which deceive us, we saw. So he ends in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And that includes being deceived about where temptation to sin comes from. God is not the source of this temptation to sin. We're the source of the temptation. But if you want to know what God does give, then we should be assured, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That is what God gives. He doesn't give temptation to sin. He doesn't give bad things or evil things. He gives good and perfect gifts. And this morning, your walk with the Lord will be more open and more real and filled with gratitude when you realize this. How often do we complain about things in our lives? How often do we magnify disappointment? We can go on and on about what's wrong. How often do we fret or worry about circumstances that are beyond our control? And the principle expressed in these two short verses is essential for us to embrace if we're going to know true fulfillment and happiness in our lives, if we're going to truly reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And this principle, I think, can be summarized in the admonition to acknowledge God's gifts gratefully. That's how I'm going to unpack these two verses this morning. Acknowledge God's gifts gratefully. And I want to suggest that we will learn to gratefully accept the provisions and opportunities that come into our lives, that come down from above. Only when we acknowledge three essential truths about what we have been given. I think James gives us each of these three essential truths right here in the text. Here's the first one. We need to realize that God is the ultimate source of all good gifts. He's the ultimate source of all good gifts because the text begins, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And that seems pretty straightforward. In fact, you might at first think that James is even being a bit redundant here for emphasis. I mean, he could have simply said every good gift is from above, right? Or he could have said every perfect gift is from above and we would have gotten the idea. But let's take a closer look at the two times that this word gift is used here in the translation. They both come from the English word to give. We also say things like 
I'm giving her a gift. We use the word gift in English the same way they used it in Greek. I'm giving her a gift. It's, it's an accepted redundancy to give a gift. So the word gift is what you are seeing when you read the second phrase, every perfect gift. You see that word gift there? That's the same word for gift such as in Matthew 2 when the Magi come and they bring their gifts before the newborn Christ. However, the word gift in the first phrase that you're looking at is not the same as the word gift in the second phrase. In fact, it is more precisely translated giving. It's like our English gerund, if you remember your English grammar. It's the same form of the word that is used in Philippians 4.15, where Paul commends the church by saying, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. In other words, we could translate verse 17, every good giving and every perfect gift is from above. That's a literal translation of that, of, of that verse. And you can find several translations, actually, that have rendered the verse in this way. For example, the New Revised Standard Version, upon which the ESV is actually based, reads, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above. That translation wanted to make sure you knew this is what's going on with that word gift. So I don't think that James is simply being redundant here. I think he's referring specifically to the act of giving on the part of God and the actual gifts that he gives. This means God's giving is itself good. It's wise. It's right. It's sincere. Have you ever received a gift with strings attached? Hidden motivation? Someone gives you something to make you feel indebted to them so they can put pressure on you later on to do something for them or to go along with something? That happens all the time. Have you ever had someone give you something only to take it back later on in some way and so you know it wasn't really a sincerely given gift? But if you want to know what good giving looks like, you look at the way that God gives. When God gives, He knows that it is something good for us. He gives it freely with nothing expected in return. His giving is good. One day years ago, my oldest daughter, who was four or five at the time, I think, said, Daddy, if I'm really good, can I have a cookie? And I wanted to form in her moral imagination an understanding of the kind of giving that you see in God. So I told her on this occasion, no, you cannot have a cookie for being good. But you can have a cookie just because I love you as long as I know it is best for you. But you can't do things to earn my loving gifts. Now, after we had a few more children and our parenting skills increased, we came to realize that bribery is actually an effective tool for parenting. <laughs> and uh, sometimes it works even better than reverse psychology. But um, what I had told my daughter on that occasion is closer to the kind of giving that we see in God. We can't do anything to impress him. We really can't. I mean, he's not looking at us thinking, wow, there's a good Christian, you know. We're all saved only by his grace. We cannot do anything to make him love us more. That is something we really need to get through our heads. God loves us as much as he loves his beloved son, Jesus. That is staggering. 
And that is something he has decided to do. He already loves us that way. He, his giving itself is therefore good beyond our understanding. And if the giving is good, the gifts are also good. James says, in fact, they're perfect. The word perfect means to come to the full end of something. It's the word we see back in verse 4 where James says that a proper response to trials moves us toward perfection. In other words, it moves us toward the full end of our spiritual maturity. It makes us grow up spiritually. But here the word perfect applied to a gift means that the gift has reached its full end of its benefit and its blessing. These are the kinds of gifts God gives. If we know that something is from God's hand, we don't have to question the goodness of God, the motive or the perfection of the gift itself. We know because of what James says here that God has given a gift to us out of love and that this gift is perfectly suited for our needs and our spiritual prosperity. Jesus himself describes the Father's giving. Remember Matthew 7, 9 through 11. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, in other words, you don't always do the right thing. And even then, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Every good giving and every perfect gift is from above. That's an essential truth that we have to keep in mind when we evaluate what God has given to us in our lives. We don't have to wonder about it. We know because this is how God gives. However, James continues with a second essential truth. Not only is God the ultimate source of all good gifts, but also God's good gifts are guaranteed by his very nature. And I use the word nature here very selectively. We can speak of God's essence, of his nature, of his attributes, and his relationships. This is how we talk about God theologically. And each of those designations represents a different category for how we describe the person of God. What we mean by God's nature is the kind of person God is. And there are at least two aspects of God's nature that are on display in verses 17 and 18. I'll get to the second one a little later on. But here we see the first. Namely, God is an immutable God. That's a great $15 theological word, meaning he never changes. God never changes with respect to his essence or his nature or his attributes. So look closely then at the second half of verse 17. God's good giving and his perfect gifts, gifts are coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's look carefully at this statement. First, to describe God as the father of lights most certainly reflects the fact that he is the creator of the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, and the stars. We might wonder why James focuses on God's creation of the heavenly lights as opposed to any of the other parts of creation. But Psalm 136.7 calls for praise to God who is described as him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. 
the moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. When we read the Old Testament, we find numerous references to God's creation of the heavenly lights as evidence of the fact that he is a God of sheer power and control and goodness over all things. Jeremiah 31, 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. And Psalm 74, 16, yours is the day, yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. And Psalm 104, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. This God who loves us is the very God who, as an act of his goodness, created and governs the magnificent heavenly bodies that sustain our lives every day. Though most of the time we completely take them for granted. He is the Father of lights. But notice how the Father of lights is further described. With him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is a really tricky clause to translate in the Greek New Testament. And if we go around and find out we have five or six versions of the Bible represented in this room right now, we probably would have five or six different renderings of this phrase uh, from the Greek New Testament. But the central idea in every one of them is that God does not vary or shift like a shadow, or change. Commentators are quick to point out that the language here is borrowed from the world of astronomy. The the words variation and change were used to describe the movements of the heavenly lights. For example, the phases of the moon, and the various manifestations of sunlight and moonlight, day by day. So James may indeed be saying that even though God made the heavenly lights, he does not morph and change like the strength and beauty of the heavenly lights do. God is constant, fixed, faithful. He is a God whose giving is good, whose gifts are perfect, and he is a God who lovingly and faithfully continues to bless us with good gifts. God is not moody. He doesn't decide whether to bless us with good things based on how he happens to feel that day. Neither does his goodness wear out. God doesn't tire of being the way he is. This is how God behaves. Now, we behave in those ways. We get moody. Our benevolence toward others is impacted by that. We may wear out in our efforts to be kind and gracious toward another. We're patting ourselves on the back one week because we're being so patient with somebody or we've given ourselves so much to help somebody and we get really tired of it uh, in the next week or two. We wear out. And I think we make a grave mistake when we think that God is like us in this way. Our theological compass is never so reversed than when we unwittingly assume that God's nature is like our nature, that God is somehow like we are. We don't have to wonder when we start a new day whether God will decide to be kind and good to us. Even if you look at the circumstances of your life and you wonder how God could have placed you there or how he could have allowed such a thing to happen, you at least know one thing. God has never stopped giving you in a good way and, and the gifts he's, he's given you have never stopped being perfect gifts. In fact, when you go through any trial, start looking for evidence 
of God's goodness in that trial. Look for evidence of his strength. Look for evidence of his peace, which passes all understanding. Look for evidence of hope. Reminders from God along the way that God is still in control. A lot of you who've expressed uh, the stories of what God did for you in trial have parts of the story where you're like, only God could have done that. And it, it didn't change sometimes the outcome of what was happening and it didn't change uh, the pain or the trial along the way in that part of the journey, but it was a reminder that God knows what he's doing. He is in charge not only of the trial, but of the severity of it as well. And he continues to love us and he never stops. That's why I love Lamentations 3, 22 through 25, where it says the steadfast of the Lord never ceases, never. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. That means if we do not see the good giving of God in our lives as his children, we're simply not looking for it. We are not seeking him, waiting upon him as we should. James can encourage these believers with confidence to be joyful in their trials and to never blame God for the temptation to sin because he knows that the divine word promises goodness out of the nature of God. This is how the scripture says God is. And so based on his very nature, this is how God gives and he will never stop giving in this way. And we can learn to be thankful for what God gives to us when we acknowledge that God is the ultimate source of all good gifts and that his immutable nature guarantees that what God always gives us is what's best for us. He never changes. It's the reason Paul can assure us in Romans 8.28 that all things are working together for good for those who love God. But there's one more essential truth that when we understand it properly, we cannot help but be encouraged to gratefully acknowledge God's perfect gifts. And it's this, God has already given us the greatest gift. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, God has already given you the greatest gift you could ever imagine. And we need to contemplate that gift and think about it, not just when we come together for the, uh, uh, as the body of Christ, although at least that's one of the reasons we gather together. We encourage each other in this idea. But this ought to be large in our minds all the time. There is a gift that is consistent with all of God's gifts. And it is the most well-given, perfect gift of immeasurable value because it was the gift of the God's son, Jesus Christ himself. And we find this gift of salvation in verse 18. The greatest example of God's gifts, James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse. At first glance, it could appear that James is referring to the fact that God gave life to the world. I mean, reflecting the language of Genesis chapters one and two, uh, you know, he, he brought us forth with his, with his word and we're his creatures. When we start to look more carefully at the words and phrases, we realize that James is not talking about mere physical birth. He's talking about spiritual birth. 
When James says that God brought us forth, it's his unique way of expressing regeneration, new birth. When you became a child of God, God gave birth to you. He birthed you into his family. No other New Testament author puts it quite like this. Peter comes close in this expression in 1 Peter 1.3 when he says that God, uh, the, Father, God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ caused us to be born again to a living hope. And John says in 1 John 3.9 that we have been born of God. But this is a unique and tender way here in James 1 of expressing God's good and perfect gift of salvation. One way we know this is because he says that God gave birth to us by the word of truth. The word of truth is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And to be brought forth by the word of truth means that the gospel is the instrument by which we are saved. It is the very thing that God uses to give birth to us. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul tells the believers, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. He also tells the believers in Colossians 1.5-6, through 6, Paul does. He says, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world bearing fruit and increasing. How is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing? It's bearing fruit in that it is bringing people into the family of God as they believe the word of God. And the only way that you are saved by God this morning, the only way that you are birthed into the family is by embracing the word of God, by believing in that word. And then James says that the result of our being born into the family of God through the word of truth is that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's what his children are, first fruits. I'm going to guess that probably that's not the typical way you describe yourself as a believer in Christ. I'm a first fruits of God. I'm, I'm part of God's first fruits. And yet, this expression in James is not unparalleled in the New Testament. We see it, for instance, in Revelation 14.4, where John describes the believers who follow the Lamb as those who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And notice, they are redeemed from mankind. That means out of the general population of human beings who were created for God and the Lamb, of uh, those who were created, they were, they were made first fruits for God and for the Lamb. And Paul says something similar in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, there's the instrument, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be God's first fruits? Well, I think that most of you know that under the Old Testament law, uh, which of course, remember, James is talking to Jewish believers here, and, and they know the law. They've, they've lived under the law before they came to faith in Christ. Most of you know that under the Old Testament law, God commanded a portion to be given back to him of all of his blessings. When they harvested wheat or barley or grapes or whatever, 
they were to take the first part of the harvest, the first sheath of grain, or the first cluster of grapes, or whatever it was, and bring it to the priest. And the priest would wave it. It was called a wave offering. They would, he would wave it before the Lord to dedicate that first part of the crop to God. And the same principle applied to children and the livestock. They didn't wave children in front of the Lord. But they were to consecrate every male that opened the womb, that came from the womb. Sometimes that meant that the child would literally be dedicated to God for a special purpose, like Samuel. That was not Hannah's bright idea. This came from what the law said. She would consecrate, if God gave her a son, that firstborn male, and he would, she would actually give him to God to serve in the tabernacle for the days of his life. This was also used with Jesus Christ himself. Remember? In Luke 2, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord. And Luke tells his readers, who may not have known, that Mary and Joseph did this because it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of the first male opening the womb and being dedicated to God for his purpose. So there is a sense in which being God's first fruits means first in order of time. So in the New Testament, when believers were called first fruit, it indicates the fact that there would be a vast harvest of souls to be brought into the family of God throughout the ages. And we're looking in the New Testament at the first fruits of that crop. When, when the laborers are few, Jesus says, and we pray for laborers to go into the harvest, this is the first part of the harvest. But I don't think that the emphasis of the idea of the first roots of the believers being, being the first and the many would come after them, I don't know that that is the emphasis. At least it does not exhaust the idea of what first fruits actually means. In fact, that's not what Revelation 14 can be talking about here because Revelation 14 is referring to believers that are saved long after the first century. I think that the picture of the first fruits focuses our attention on the acknowledgement of God's good and perfect gifts. In that world, the harvest was a great time of celebration because it meant that the people would have food for the coming year. We, we take that for granted here in modern America. But they didn't know if they'd have grain for the next year unless God gave them abundance this year. And so the harvest was life to them. And the first fruits, the first stalk of grain or the first cluster of grapes or whatever they gleaned from the harvest, it represented the joy an abundance of God's rich blessing. So with the knowledge that this was God's blessing on them, they would gratefully dedicate those first fruits to God. And of course, we understand the anticipation and joy and thanksgiving offered to God for a child coming into the world, especially that first child. And the Jews were taught then to especially consecrate the first male to God, the one that would carry on the family lineage and the rights to the land because this child was God's gift to that family. It seems to me that being God's first fruits then has less to do with the order of, of, of being birthed into God's family and more to do with how good God has been to bring us into his family and also that we are now dedicated to him. That's who we are as believers. We're dedicated unto God apart from everything else in the world. 
So James is reminding us as believers in Christ that if we want to see evidence of God's good giving and perfect gifts in our lives, we need to look no further than the most precious gift we could have ever received. God birthed us into his family through the gospel of truth so that above all and beyond all, the blessing of simply being one of his creatures, we will live with him forever as a celebrated and dedicated member of his household. Paul reminds us that if God would not even spare his own son for us, will he not freely give us all things? And you know what motivates this blessing? I told you earlier that there are at least two aspects of God's nature that are on display in verses 17 and 18. The first was God's immutability. He does not change. He's constant and faithful. With him, there's no variation or shadow due to change. But there's a second aspect of God's nature at the beginning of verse 18, where James says, of his own will, he brought us forth. God's nature is not only expressed in his immutability, but also in his freedom. That's a theological term about God, his freedom. In other words, what God does, he does freely, determined only by his own pleasure in accordance with his personality. God does what he wants to do. And the word will in verse 18 is not just a wish or desire. Sometimes you see that in the scripture. God is not willing that any should perish. It means that he's, he's not, he, he has a desire that all are, all are saved. This is not the same word. This particular word in Greek refers to God's determined will or his decree. Whenever God wills something in the scripture and this word is involved, it always comes to pass. In fact, the verse actually reads, having exercised his will, he brought forth us through the word of truth. The answer to the question, why are you in the family of God and not someone else who has yet to be saved? The answer is certainly because you have already trusted in the word of truth, the gospel, and they have not. But ultimately, no one comes into the family of God apart from God's willing it to be so, which is based on his good and wise and holy desire. We cannot give birth to ourselves. I mean, I'm sure when you were born, you were the focus of all the activity in the room, but you really had little to do with the whole process. Birth is something that happened to you. And when we pray for people to be saved, we are praying that God will be gracious to them and save them, that he will exercise his holy will and shower his most good and perfect gift upon them by birthing them into the family of God. And that is exactly how the Bible describes the process of salvation in the New Testament. I know that there is this part in our brain that wrestles with how this can be so how people can choose to believe that gospel and it is necessary for them to come to salvation. And yet at the same time, how they will not unless God exercises his determining will. And I don't know how to reconcile those two theological truths. I'll just tell you right now, that's beyond my wisdom and my calling to tell you how that all works out. But what I do know is that the scripture affirms both to be true. 
And the reason James bring this, brings this up is not to make us question the character of God, but to cause us to humbly wonder at it. To make us marvel at this mystery that God actually saved us. That he actually sent his son for us. That he actually birthed us into the family of God. Not because we did something to impress him. Not because we were desirable, but because of his own gracious and loving will. And now we are his precious first fruits. And as a child of God, you represent God's loving, benevolent giving. And you are set apart from the rest of the world, from the rest of his creatures, as one who gives your heart and body and soul in, in acknowledgement of his goodness. And that puts our lives into an amazing perspective. In fact, I will tell you this. If, if you want to be a, a testimony of God's saving grace to people who do not know Christ, one of the surest ways you can show them your testimony is by living out the recognition of God's good gifts. When you are going through trial, when you are facing heartache and you respond in a biblical manner, they will wonder how in the world is it possible that you can respond in this way. It is impossible. I can't do this on my own. This is the work of God in me because I belong to a God who gives perfectly and gives perfect gifts. One of the dear believers in my church in Hendersonville was a man who was in his youth tall and strong as an ox, talented in sports. In fact, he was a great ball player. He became a, 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 the chaplain for a major league ball team for a while. He was an able mechanic and a builder. He was a gifted teacher. But by the time I knew him, severe diabetes had robbed him of his sight and his ability to do all the things that he knew how to do. And then he developed lymphoma uh, cancer. And much of the time I knew him, he was going for treatments for that, and he continued to battle with lymphoma off and on before the Lord took him into glory a few years ago, a couple years ago now. But despite all of that, you would go far to find a man who was more content, more grateful to God for his gifts, and more aware of God's continual presence. I would sometimes say with justified concern, you know, Gene, how are you really doing? I mean, you can level with me. How are you feeling? And he would say, Pastor, you know, one day a long time ago, I put my faith in Jesus Christ and God saved me for all eternity. And he said, I'm going to live with him forever. And he said, I figure anything else in life after that is all downhill. <laughs> so in the grand scheme of things, I'm doing fantastic, he would say. And we must all admit that we have been given so much by the good hand of God. We have received good giving and perfect gifts from God who by his very nature faithfully continues to pour out his blessing upon us. And every time we are reminded of this, we are rebuked for our own complaining and, and lack of trust. We, we can't read a verse like this. I can't get just, just get up and even read it without being personally rebuked. And I know you must feel the same way. We, we know we are not as grateful as we ought to be to God. But beyond all of these blessings, when we realize what God has done for us through the gospel, that he has birthed us into his family, 
There is no discomfort, no heartache, no disappointment that does not fade away in comparison to that. And no matter what trial or pressure weighs on your heart this morning in which you are praying for God to work, and we pray that he will, James encourages you to set everything happening in your life in context of the fact that we serve a God who is a good giver and one who gives perfect gifts, especially the gift of our salvation. So James would say, do you know the Lord? Do you say you know him? Do we say we are in his family, that he has given birth to us? Though we did nothing to earn his favor? Do we say that this life will soon be passed and we will be with him forever? Do we really mean that? If so, James tells us, live up to this faith. Think and act and, re- and speak and rejoice as if this is true. And together, let us acknowledge and celebrate with eternal gratitude all that God has given to us. Father, we are so thankful.